0: Crime Scene and Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app, funded mainly through advertising. The podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne. Dog Mom Baker, True Crime Podcast Maker, and I know we just had an episode out, but that was a bonus episode, talking about all the new things, all the new changes that Crime Scene and Cupcakes is going to be going through and having with this new season that's coming. So, here we are. Season 2, Episode 8 of Crime Scene and Cupcakes. And in our bonus episode, we talked about all those new things. But today's episode, we're going to go back. We're going back to the 70s. And in the 70s in Wichita, Kansas, we were in the grips of a serial killer. And that serial killer was taunting our law enforcement. And eventually, we would all realize that appearances are very deceiving. And someone may appear to be very quiet. That person could be very respectable, a good employee. But you have no idea the darkness that could be lurking inside of them. Now, you may have heard about the subject of today's podcast, Ruth Finley, and you may have heard about The Poet of Wichita. You may have heard that Netflix has teamed up with the Stranger Things streaming production company, and they're going to be producing their own version of the events that happened in our town in the 70s, but... There are some things I don't think they're going to share, and there are some things I don't even think that they're aware of. I think they're gonna give us the Hollywood version. They're gonna make Wichita look like a town much smaller than it really is. I think they're gonna make us look a little bit redneck hillbilly kind of a town. And of course, they're going to give BTK some of that glitz and glamour that he does not deserve. So let me give you Crime Scene and Cupcake's version of Ruth Finley and the Poet. Now, we take our version from articles that we've looked at from the Wichita Eagle that were written by Fred Mann we take it from some other we listened to um some of the other podcasts that are out there and we've made notes um from their versions you know of course it's like you know when stephen king is writing and you feel the flavors from the other writers that he's listening to from that time period. You just, you get, you kind of marinate in what you are listening to at that time. And that's kind of what we're going to be giving you today. But I also want to talk a little bit about the case of Mary Krupper because I just feel like there is something there when I was reading these articles about the poet. Mary Krupper is a woman who was 47 years old in 1979 and she was murdered and her case is still unsolved today. But see as you listen to the case of the poet and Ruth Finley and see if you don't agree with me that there are some similarities and I wonder the hows and the whys of where these similarities might come from. So let's talk about Ruth Finley. Because she was a soft-spoken woman. She liked wearing muted respectable dresses and jeans She wasn't the type of woman that a lot of people immediately noticed, but she was a very attractive woman with sparkling eyes and short brown hair. She lived here in Wichita, Kansas, and she worked at Southwestern Bell. Now, for those younger listeners, that's a telephone company, you know, with landlines and those rotary phones. (laughs) And she was quietly beautiful. But her life was far from quiet because someone had made sure that by 1981, people knew who Ruth was. Someone tortured and tormented Ruth Finley. Ruth Finley, a woman who enjoyed knitting and donating scarves to the US troops in Afghanistan. Someone had abducted Ruth Finley, a woman who had volunteered to translate test textbooks into Braille after she learned the code so that she could do that. So just remember, when you hear about the poet, you might think, huh, would a killer actually send poems? Now, at this time, BTK had called the Wichita Eagle and directed them to a book in the Wichita Library. Now, we had discussed BTK in our Season 2, Episode 2, and it's called, Dear Wichita, I'm Still Here. So, if, in, if you haven't already, make sure you go back and listen to that episode. It's not important to listen to it for this episode, but it does talk about some of the letters that BTK wrote to the media. So it, if you want to go over that fact, you might want to go back and listen to it. So by January 31st, 1978, BTK has killed nine people and he reaches out to the Wichita Eagle with a poem that has the line, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks. But the mail clerk, well, they initially thought it was a valentine and they decided to forward it to the classifieds. So that letter had been mishandled. But I just wanted to bring that up because obviously killers can and did write poems. So Wichita, Kansas was reeling. A serial killer was terrorizing our community. And also at that time, September 12, 1979, 47-year-old Mary Krupper was found discarded like a piece of trash in a dead-end clearing. They weren't sure Who did? They still aren't sure today, as that case is unsolved. But police are wondering if it had something to do with a man in a brown maverick who had attempted to abduct several women from a local farmer's market that same day. The man was described by people at the store as being in slight build, graying hair at the sides, wearing dark-rimmed glasses, and a bald spot. Now I want you guys to remember this, this description stuck out to me when I was reading more about the poet. So even though this suspect had tried to abduct several women to get into his car, the Brown Maverick, Mary Krupper was abducted into her own vehicle and was found where her body was discarded with multiple pieces of evidence at the scene. Now we're going to discuss her case in greater detail with a special guest next week. So make sure you download and follow to listen to our podcast next Monday, where we will be discussing the Mary Krepper case. So let's get back to Ruth Finley and the poet. So according to Ruth Finley, this all starts on one humid night when she's at home alone because they had taken her husband to the hospital earlier that day. That afternoon, her husband Ed had collapsed in the yard, they thought from a heart attack. And while he was laying in a hospital bed, while the doctors were trying to figure out what was going on, Ruth was at home, scared, trying to relax. So she started going through the radio, finding some easy listening music. But that wasn't easy because our town was in the grips of BTK. So that was all anyone wanted to talk about. So she's switching through the channels and the phone rings. And she immediately is thinking it's the doctor or the nurse to tell her some bad news about it. So she goes to answer the phone, and instead of a nurse or a doctor, she hears an unfamiliar male voice on the line asking if this is Ruth Smock from Fort Scott, Kansas. And she says that that question startled her because Smock was her maiden name and she had not lived in Fort Scott for decades. But she had replied that it was And the man had responded with, that he knew all about that night. And Ruth didn't need to ask the man to know which night he meant. He was talking about October 15th, 1946. There is an article in the Fort Scott, Kansas Tribune that talks about a young woman who was branded on both thighs by a hot, flat iron, apparently by a sex maniac. Ruth Smock, a 16-year-old Fort Scott High School girl, was resting today at home of her parents following an attack upon her early last night. So that night, Ruth says, in 1946, she had just returned to her rooming house from buying groceries when she heard the screen door open behind her, and suddenly she felt herself grabbed by a man behind her, tearing at her clothes. She said the guy was about 50 years old. Remember that. Struggling to break free, Ruth jabbed the man in the eyes with her thumbs and he had yelled at her that he would fix her so no one would look at her ever again. And the man shoved a rag doused with chloroform over Ruth's mouth. She began to fade into unconsciousness and in her final hazy image before passing out was the man heating a flat iron on the stove. When she awoke, she had first degree burns on both her thighs blood oozing from scratches on her face, arms, and legs. Now, here it was, 31 years later, and the male caller was asking her if she still wore the brand. And she replied, I I don't know what you're talking about, because 31 years later, it couldn't be the same man, because she had said the man was 50 years old. Didn't sound like it was a 90 or 80 year old man on the phone so her head swam with confusion of why this guy would be bringing up that incident and the man told Ruth that he worked for a construction company that was tearing down old houses in Fort Scott and he'd found a number of yellowing newspapers in the wall and the article about Ruth was among them and if she didn't give him money he would tell everyone at work about the attack that she had when she was a teenager. So she was scared and freaked out and she slammed down the phone and she went to bed. So when Ruth Finley hung up the phone that night, 31 years later, she didn't think she'd be able to sleep, but she did. She actually slept like 10 hours. She didn't tell her husband about the call. She said she just tried to forget about it. Her first run-in with that caller though was about two months later. He popped out of a crowded street in downtown Wichita and followed her all the way to Henry's, which is a store where she was trying to meet her husband. He walked up to her and said, "'I like your face.' And she couldn't forget about that. So when she arrived at the store, he looked at her again and said, I'll see you again. You can count on that. Then he said something like, Some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares. And let me tell you, that would give me nightmares. And then after that, he was gone. But there were more. There were more phone calls, and he would just get nasty, she said. He called her names, and he would hang up. Then another encounter, this one about a month later, was outside Macy's. We don't have a Macy's in Wichita anymore, but we did back then. He grabbed her arm as she was walking in the alley between buildings, and he said, Ruth, get back here, you stupid bitch, and talk to me. She yanked free and ran back into the store, riding the escalator to the fifth floor. That was before she even knew where she was. The families then went to the police. They talked to a friend of theirs, then Lieutenant Bernie Drowatsky of the Department in Charge of Major Crimes. He listened to them and gave them his card. And then the letters began. They would arrive neatly stenciled and pretty profane, oftentimes threatening. And he seemed fascinated by her branding. Ruth Finley reported the first major incident with the man on November 21st, 1978. So then on November 21st, 1978, Ruth decides to take her lunch break and go downtown and run some errands. And she wore a red print blouse and a black jacket and black pants. And she's, you know, there's North Market. And again, that's kind of the downtown area. And she was leaving a greeting card shop. And suddenly her path is blocked by this blue-green 1964 Chevy Bel Air and the only other person she says she could see was an elderly woman who was walking up the far end of the street and Ruth is just freaking out um, because she says it's the same man who's confronted her before and he jumps from the car and this time he was wearing some black frame glasses and he asks her, have you got my money? and (laughs) at the same time this is I'm sorry for this is interesting he kicks Ruth in the shin and she folds over in pain and the man grabs her and shoves her into the car and she says he shoves her into the back seat and it's just filled with just crap it's just loaded with all this stuff and he climbs it next to her and slams the door and in the driver's seat is another man and he's drinking from a bottle in a paper bag. I mean we are getting very much like a novel here. So Ruth's attacker called him Buddy and so Ruth is looking for a way to get away from her attacker and Buddy and She sees that the door handle on her side is broken, and on the floor, though, she sees a gas can and pieces of concrete and chains and rags, and the car's left rear window was covered with plastic, and the dashboard was crisscrossed with white tape, so this is a very distinctive car. I mean, it's got concrete, it's got the window, it's got chains, I mean, this is the most serial killerish type of vehicle I have ever heard of and the guy who kidnaps Ruth tells her to give him her purse and as he's going through it he finds her safe deposit key and he yells to his friend oh my gosh we've struck it rich but his mood turns really really dark as he comes across to business card and he shows it to his counterpart named Buddy and then begins just hurling curse words at Ruth and starts calling her a stupid bitch and just is just going off on her and she collapses in the seat. So the car is just speeding off. The two men are just yelling back and forth. That Ruth isn't able to figure out what the hell's going on, and Buddy is able to make it to Twin Lake Shopping Center. And again, if you're figuring out the path, and stick with me here. So they're going Northwest Market Twin Lake. So those of you who know Wichita will see where I'm going. And so they get to Twin Lake Shopping Center, and they're talking about Sears's inability to properly fix his car. And then he says, we'll get rid of her, but not here. And then he says, something's sending another jolt of fear through her. And she all of a sudden is like, oh, I've got mace in my purse. But she says she was too scared to reach for it. Which, yeah, I, I mean, you could be so terrified you won't go for something and then outside of the car the weather is just getting darker it's getting colder a night is coming and buddy the driver he's just driving randomly around Wichita and he asked Ruth if she likes beer and he says we're gonna go get some beer and have a party and I'm gonna be real nice to you so it's been four hours into this And Ruth finally tells the guys who have her that she has to pee. And the men just laugh. And Ruth is like, she starts retching. And she's like, okay, I'm going to throw up. And if I don't go to the bathroom, I'm going to throw up. Well, they don't care about her peeing, but they seem to have a problem with her throwing up. So they're like, okay, you can't do that. So they stop at a small park near West 21st Street and Salina. Stick with me. Before the men let her out of the car, they make her remove her shoes and sweater so she doesn't run away because it's cold, it's dark. She's not going to run away if you take away her shoes and sweater. And then the guy who kidnapped Ruth, not Buddy, but the other one, he says, well, this is going to be fun. And he takes her down into the park. And he says, I'll watch you, and you watch me. Doesn't that sound like fun? So Ruth is walking next to him, and they must have let her take her purse. So no shoes, no jacket, but we'll let you take your purse. And she grabs her can of minks. So when they reach the lake... So they pull the car over to a small park near West 21st street and Salina and the men take away Ruth's shoes and sweater so she won't run away, but they allow her to take her purse, the purse with the mace in it. And so the, not Buddy, but the other guy walks with Ruth as she's going to the bathroom, but he tells her he's going to go to the bathroom first. And as he unzips his fly, Ruth takes out her can of mace and presses the nozzle. The man collapses, coughing, and Ruth takes off barefoot through the park. She finds a large bush, and she hides behind it. And the man is chasing her through the park and is yelling that she's going to freeze if we leave you here. And he's like, just come and get your shoes and your coat. We won't bother you anymore. But we're we're worried that you're going to freeze, so come on out. But she stays there, even though she's freezing from the cold. But she stays there and she doesn't know how long, but it's dark. She's cold. Her feet are freezing. And she finally waits and she timidly comes out, look, she doesn't see the car. So she leaves the park and she goes to a nearby liquor store and tells the owner that someone is after her and the owner immediately calls the police and she asks him to also call her husband. So Ed of course has already called the police. He's reported his wife missing and. Now he's like, okay, he knows where Ruth is. He goes to the liquor store, but she has already been picked up by the police and she's taken to headquarters. So Lieutenant Drowski is like, okay, we're going to have to do something because Ruth has had her $315 paycheck stolen, $100 U.S. savings bond. And, you know, they're like, okay, so we're really kind of getting concerned that this could be BTK but okay but she's still alive though but we've never heard of him working with another guy but we still gotta take this into consideration so the next next day another detective goes to the park where Ruth had escaped the kidnappers and he looks and he finds her shoes and her sweater so they did leave them for her because they guess they were worried she was going to get cold. But they weren't able to find any additional clues. They also went and looked for all the information on any 64 Chevy Bel Airs in the city. And they couldn't find any that matched all of the distinctive qualities that she had stated that was in it. And for the next five weeks, detectives are just Ruth can't go anywhere without somebody with her. They are driving back and forth to Fort Scott, trying to find anybody that might look closely resembling what Ruth has explained to her. I mean, detectives in the city are shelling out thousands of dollars, trying to track down her abductors. They are spending tons of manpower guarding her she's spending tons of time going through mugshots. Ed is a wreck. And so Lieutenant Drowsky is, he goes to KEYN and which is one of our local radio stations at the time. And he starts challenging the poet and he's trying to get people to call in. And Ruth and another few detectives are listening in, trying to see if any of the voices sound familiar. And just, it's no good. The radio show is doing nothing. So Drowski has done the radio show. They, they have basically pulled out all the stops, trying to get information, trying to set up these traps, you know, they've contacted the FBI, they're trying to do all of this to get this guy, and they are getting nowhere. And in this time, Ruth is starting to show physical wear and tear. She's having stomach cramps, she's having headaches, she's losing weight, she's not sleeping, but... You know, her husband's getting really worried and they just feel like they're getting nowhere. They've called the FBI in; they don't know what to do. And then Drowatsky receives a letter from her attacker. And it accuses the detective of protecting a whore from death. And let me tell you, this pisses Drowatsky off. I mean, because in his mind, Ruth is a good kind woman and he just feels like you know he's not doing his job his job is to protect and serve and here he is trying to protect this woman and letters are still coming in what the hell so you know he's trying he's getting nowhere and meanwhile Ruth and Ed's knight's have just reflected their new reality. I mean, they, they I don't know if I've mentioned this, but they have two sons. Their two sons have already left the home. Um, Ruth is 47. Ed is 50. So they should be enjoying, you know, their life. They should be relaxing, you know, uh, you know, but it's not happening. Ed is sleeping with his 12 gauge shotgun. In their backyard and Ruth is up pacing the floor waiting for the attacker to make their appearance this is not what should be happening at this point in their life so as the weather is warming up and spring is turning into summer the letters for Ruth keep piling up and the words they're written in rhyming verse and the message are are becoming violent and grossly sexual. Um, one line is, the whore bore her guilt in her bed of slime from selling her ass and not charging a dime. Slept with strangers in evil bed. Enraged demon hunters saw blood was red. All bitches should keep their names and faces secret. And so not the best writer so by July of 1979 though the letters stop and Ruth and Ed are growing hopeful that okay this dude has found somebody else to screw with this person is leaving them alone so usually they go to a ranch in Colorado every year and so they're like okay things have calmed down We're going to do this. So Ed is like, you know what? We're going to go to normalcy. Things are finally quiet. We're going to go to Colorado. And so Ruth is like, okay, I am so sick of not having a moment alone. I just want to get out by myself. And I can totally picture that. You know, I have six dogs. I can totally picture, you know, I just want to be by myself for frigging a little bit. So... She decides, I want to go get a new pair of jeans. So she decides she wants to go to Town East and she wants to go to Macy's over at Town East. And Ed is like, mm, I'm not digging this idea of you going by yourself. But, you know, she's begging him, I just need to be alone. And of course, again, he's like, poor Ed. You know, your wife is begging you to just have some time alone. Of course, how could you say no? So he's like, okay, you know, make sure you take precautions. Be careful. You know, you've done this and nothing really horrible has happened. You've, we say that, but you've been abducted. You've lost your shoes. You've lost your sweater. So some things have happened, but okay. So, by the time Ruth walks out of Macy's with her new jeans, and she did go, she went, she got her jeans, but then she decided to go back and buy candy. Again, just something that's just a little weird to me, but the evening has started to settle in, it's about 830, and it's getting deserted, and Ruth is a starting to realize, okay, maybe it wasn't the best idea to go back and get some candy. So she's almost to her 1979, 79. so she's almost to her 1979 Oldsmobile when she heard a male voice call out, hey Ruth, I didn't know you were gonna make this so easy. And she turns around and she recognizes with all the horror that it's the man who kidnapped her a year ago. Holy shit. So Ruth runs for a car, but before she can unlock the door, the man comes up behind her and grabs her wrist and shoves her head up against the window and tells her to get in. And he wants to take her to a bridge near the airport road. And again, if you know Wichita, you know what road he's talking about. And he throws a brown paper shopping bag through the partially open rear window in the back seat. The bag held clothesline rope, white tape. He likes says white tape, people. A red bandana. That's important. And a half empty bottle of wine. Because we all like our wine. And he says, we'll go to a nice little place where it says, keep out. Because... You gotta look for those signs. Ruth breaks free and she tries to step around the car and the man pulls out an eight inch knife to stab her. And she slumped into the car and rammed the key into the ignition. The man, he stuck a brown-gloved hand through the window, which she had left open, and when her head was bashed against it, she rolled the window up, and the man jerked his hand away, leaving the brown glove dangling in the window. She drove to a nearby gas station across the street from the shopping center to call the police. She knew something was wrong with her left side. She reached down, felt the handle of a knife sticking out of her lower back. And she felt immediately sick. She called the major crimes unit and they told her to go home where Ed would be waiting. So she ended up going to St. Joseph Hospital, which is now Via Christi St. Joseph. And they found a light cut across the top of the left side of her back, a deep cut on her left arm and a deep gash in her lower left side. The lower wound had bruised her kidney, and she ended up spending nine days in the hospital under 24-hour protection. An hour after she had checked out, a man had ended up coming to the hospital asking for her. The nurse said that the man looked a lot like the police sketches that have been in the newspaper, so the police were sure somebody was looking for Ruth Finley, because they didn't think she could stab herself, so now the skeptics are quiet. Police are now sure they had there was an averted potential homicide. The case was taken to the public. Phone calls about the composite were solicited, and Ruth Finley described her attacker as a white male, about fifty years old. He stood about five foot eight, five foot ten about 145 pounds with dark hair, grain around the sides. He wore gold or black rimmed glasses. Calls came in and every average man that was described, people were calling about their next door neighbors, their uncles, the weird guy they weren't really sure about. Everybody's names were checked out. They were put on computer cards. Photos were circulated. And Ruth Finley was, nope, nope, not him, not him. Nope, that's not it. Police were traveling to Fort Scott over and over, trying to find a link to the 1946 attack. Overtime was getting paid. It it was 24-hour protection. I mean, but unfortunately, that could only last for a few weeks. Officers were staying in their home months longer, but their hours had to be reduced. Ed Finley ended up taking his wife to and from work every day. Now she worked in an office. (laughs) It was interesting because she was the head of a security company for the phone company. So she was the head of the security and she was behind a locked door with a peephole in it. So she was pretty secure, but she became a prisoner locked in the office all day and unable to be out of Ed's company for very long at all. And their marriage had always been sound, she said, but this seemed to draw them even closer. And the police said she seldom complained. And they thought her patience and humor were absolutely incredible. And everybody is speculating that This could possibly be BTK. Samples of both of the writers were sent to Linguist at Syracuse University who had helped with the Son of Sam case in New York. The letter writers he wrote back were definitely two different people. The Finley letter writer the doctor wrote was pathological, wily, paranoid, with feelings of persecution, a loner who suffered hallucinations, that had their onset in the mid-30s age range and would not abate with age. A month after the stabbing, Ed Finley took out an ad in the person-to-person column of the Eagle Beacon. Poet, he said, tell me what I owe you. He's willing to pay this person off. Just leave my family alone. I just want some normalcy. The case had even begin, been given a name, The Poet. So we've got the BTK and we have The Poet. And then The Poet started writing the eagle and beacon again in October, warning it not to confuse the executioners ever again. Even though, to our knowledge, The Poet hadn't executed anybody. A story had mentioned BTK and the Finley attacker in the same story, yet the same letter contained more hints at previous attacks. Yet none could be verified. But then on November 16th, the poet wrote this reporter, Fred Mann and the Woodshot Eagle and Beacon. In this world, I fear myself turning crazed. My fame dying out forever in endless time. Should, which is misspelled, I be honored for a goodness or hung for a crime? What goodness? I couldn't figure out that the person did. I am not dangerous. Just to those who are too dumb to do what they are told, I will direct this game. And then the poet said they wanted two ads printed in the paper. One to Ruth Finley, telling her how much she should pay to stay alive. And the other to Drowatsky, giving detailed instructions to a bridge at the airfield east of town. The poet wanted a meeting. The newspaper consented to police requests to run the ads, plus one from the reporter to the poet, inviting the poet to let him know anything else that was needed. So the poet believed that. They were so the poet, the police believed, was just looking for a friend. And at last they had a way of communicating with the Finley attacker. So the poet said, Don't consider me a juggernaut or a womanizer. I have convictions. I comprehend separatism for men and females by whatever the deed. There are mongrels for the little guy. Maybe I will talk to you sometime. This is man-to-man. Of course, said police chief, Richard LeMunnion, as a meeting with newspaper editors broke up, my first suspect is Ruth Finley. So throughout the three-year history of the poet case, they entertained a little bit, sometimes complaining that they only had a few friends. They were warm hosts, even willing and eager to talk about the poet. You go to the Finley's, Ruth might pull out the notebook she kept of all the poet's letters. I wonder how long it takes him to write this crap, she would joke. He doesn't do a bad job of writing poetry. Some of them are kind of funny, she would say. So the chief of police suspects Ruth Finley. But Ruth Finley doesn't know he suspects Ruth Finley. Ruth Finley is pulling out the poems at dinner parties and doesn't think he's half bad. And you have to remember, this is going on over the course of years. They're taking police time, money. She's been stabbed. She's been kidnapped. I think we all want to know Hi. what's going on what's up with the red bandana and do some of you remember why I was asking about the Mary Crepper case so unfortunately this podcast has gone on for a while but I'm not going to make you wait until next week but I will make you wait until tomorrow. So check us out tomorrow where we're going to have the rest of the poet.